I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch the movie Caroline. Jones, Peter. Those mice, they're so confused. They called you Coraline. That's hey, not a name. Hey, Pete. Hi. Uh, where we love to watch, we're in our second week of kid horror movie, and we're doing a movie that I have probably seen more in the last five to seven years than any other movie. Um... Which is fine, because it is a movie that remains maybe my favorite animated movie of all time, definitely my favorite stop-motion movie of all time, maybe my favorite kids' movie of all time, which is 2009, Henry Selleck directed, based on the book by Neil Gaiman, uh, Coraline. Um, And part of the reason I've watched it so much is that I have a nine-year-old daughter and I have a five-year-old daughter, and both of them went through phases where this is all they wanted to watch. Uh, my oldest got a Coraline doll that was really cool. I mean, this that was it. It was just watching this over and over and over and over. And then my five-year-old saw her watch it. And as she moved on to other things, which FYI, parents, if your kid's watching the same movie over and over, it eventually goes away. Even kids burn themselves out on it. Um but then my youngest picked it up and watched it over and over and over and over and over again. So I'm not going to pretend like I uh, I'm a I'm my own worst critic on Letterboxd when it comes to like did I watch that or was I in the room when some of it was playing. So if I logged it every time it played in my house, it would be a hundred to two hundred times on Letterboxd. Even without doing that, even only locking it when I sat down and focused on it. It's one of my most it's I think it's my most watched movie that is not specifically the cartoon version of How the Grinch Stole Christmas or Pee-wee's Christmas, uh, <laughs> which are which are have more watches for very obvious reasons. And that I don't know if you know this, Peter, Christmas comes once a year and Christmas I watch those well. two every time. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so uh, but that was my first time seeing this movie. Um, I did see it when it came out. I did not appear. You and I talked about this a little. So this is a notorious, like when people say 3D is bad for movies or 3D sucks and they say, what's an exception to a movie that was better in 3D? I've heard this cited as an example over and over and over again. I did not see it in theaters. Um, so I never yeah, saw I it in three. Now, I did eventually see it in, in theaters. Alamo had a showing of it like in 2017, 2018 when Maya was really into it when we went and saw it in theaters. And they just did a re-release of it this past August, which I did not get a chance to go see. But they've never re-released it in 3D, even when they do it, which seems like a huge miss because I can see why this would be amazing, even more spooky in 3D. My Blu-ray copy has a 3D version and it has glasses. I've heard that sucks if you're not – you don't have a 3D TV. Um, So, I've never watched it in 3D. But when I did watch it in 2009, for some reason, I didn't have high expectations for it. Maybe I should have. I guess like – I mean, I knew Henry Selleck. I like Nightmare Before Christmas. I like James and the Giant Peach. 
But I feel like – and we did the Nightmare on Christmas episode. I feel like I've come to like those movies more as I've watched them with my kids than I like them remembering them from when I was a kid. So I, I, I didn't like – I wasn't like super excited. I don't think I had like the the, the extent that like I, – I probably when this came out still kind of associated Nightmare on Christmas more with Tim Burton than with Henry Selleck. Um but so I and I didn't read the book by Neil Gaiman, and I hadn't read much Neil Gaiman at that time. I've since corrected that, but I rented it because it got really good reviews and people really liked it. And I like was blown away by this. Like it, it, it hit me in a way that wasn't just like, "Hey, that's a good kids movie that I enjoy." Like sometimes Pixar movies are like. Um, some Pixar movies feel like they're more meant for adults. We talked about Inside Out and some other stuff. But, like, sometimes you're like, hey, that's a really good kids movie. I like that as an adult. Um, this one just was like – I immediately was like, this is one of my favorite movies of all time. I love this. It's creepy. It's weird. The animation's amazing. Like, it was – it was their scary parts the first time you watch it as an adult. Like, I was like, this is truly an amazing work of art. Yeah, and uh, a theme this month is, um, <laughs> for the first three movies at least, are going to be uh, horror movies for kids that we don't think compromise the fact that they're horror movies um, until, for a couple of them, the very end. I wouldn't say Coraline's on that list. Coraline is not only the best movie we're going to cover this month, um, Coraline is also one of the best movies we've ever covered on the show. It's just yeah. a, it, it's it's one of the best around. movies. Yeah. It's it, and and it does come back to I think what you're talking about. Um, it's a movie that is enjoyable for adults. It, it, that's a hard mix to get yeah. right. Um, it doesn't mean you have some like Shrek like covert jokes about blowjobs hidden in the middle of your movie. <laughs> um, by the way, Shrek was it Shrek three Shrek in three D and you had uh, green three D glasses and shit. Um, uh, that's where that's where Shrek's dick came right at you, right at you with the blowjob um, jokes. I didn't see no. Shrek 3. I'm sorry, Peter. Yeah. Well, I'm a phony yeah. Shrek fan. You if got you had I've seen, seen one. I've seen two. If you had seen it, you would know that Shrek has a cloaca. So actually what you're seeing is fishy discharge coming at the screen, Aaron. It's not his dick. It's not a dick. He has a cloaca. Can, I think I need to take a break to throw up. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm aroused or sick. <laughs> hey, in my world, same thing. Yeah. Um, Shrek's over 18, baby. <laughs> <laughs> so, but like, this is the, one of the th- the reasons that we... Hope kids uh, listen uh, to this do- episode. <laughs> oh, yeah, actually. Um, one of the reasons that we love uh, we love this movie so much is because it does, it does feel like it doesn't compromise for children. And what that really means is it's not talking down to children. Yeah. I think I think the endings of this movie, as well as something wicked this way, comes. They're a little too sugary sweet for a capper on very dark movies. Um, but uh, the witches is compromised more than something wicked, I would say. Yeah. Um, but uh, we talked a lot about Roald Dahl and why we think Roald Dahl kind of sticks around with kids, and we talked about that. Roald Dahl wasn't talking down to kids. Roald Dahl was speaking in a language that kids can understand, but he was speaking. Uh, from a kid's perspective, and he was speaking about the adult world from a kid's perspective. And Neil Gaiman, who has written um, across all sorts of genres, all sorts of mediums, uh, and to all sorts of audiences, some of his work, like American Gods, is like very sexual and very adult. Um, 
and but he's also done like kids books and stuff yeah my kids my kids and i have a few of the like uh i my dad i traded my dad for some goldfish or um who spilled the milk and i probably have both those titles wrong because i'm forgetting them but yeah like they they have a um mere mask or something like that like a lot of good kid stuff i also since uh about three or four years ago read through all the sandman stuff and was just like this is one of my favorite things of all time Um, which apparently people like that Sandman show. I've been um, meaning to watch it. Um, yeah. I've heard I've heard it's good. And it got. Uh, I mean, I don't know if the actors or writers are ever coming back, but if they do, uh, it was renewed for a second season, as far as I, yeah. I understand. And who who knows what re- those renewals mean in a in yeah. a post uh, strike world? But the point is that Neil Gaiman wrote this book. It became one of those books, like a Roald Dahl book, that like. If you didn't read this book when you were of a, if you're a millennial and you didn't read this book when you were eight, you have a friend that did. It's one of those just yeah. like those perennial classics. Older siblings give them down to their younger siblings. Like it's it's one of those those books that's like has a little bit of that cult cool cachet, but also sold a lot of copies. And Neil Gaiman uh, recently, I think it was on Blue Sky. Um, yep. There was a question of him, which was, um, you know, you have a lot of your work has been adapted and it's it's in various formats. Um, if somebody had to experience your work for the first time, how would you recommend they, they go about that? And for Mirror Mask, he was like, you know, read the book. Watch, yeah. And then for Coraline, he was like, watch the movie first. And if you fall in love with the movie, go ahead and read the book. Yeah. Like. He was such and, and and it's to note, this is not him saying I did such a killer job on, on the script or whatever. He met Well script was written uh, by Henry, Henry Selleck. Yeah. And he basically he started sh- shooting the shit with him and and Henry Selleck said, I don't know how I'm gonna make this a new movie, but I want to in two thousand two. Um and and he basically said, You know what, Henry Selleck? Take it. Yeah. Do whatever you're gonna do with it. And he was basically it sounds like he was pretty much hands off from that point. So somebody completely hands off from a movie. Um, an author saying, actually, just watch the movie, clearly means not only does he identify with it as part of the work or descendant from his work, but that it somehow captures something that his work doesn't, yeah. or it somehow captures something and he wants to share with the world before he even ex- shares the direct work with you. And I yeah. think that's a really powerful way to to share a recommendation for a movie, which is like the author himself prefers the movie that he didn't work on to his book. At least yeah. for first time people. Yeah. So let's, I want to talk about like that idea of a movie that kids and adults enjoy, what it typically means and why I think this is even in those rules an exception and why it works so well for kids and adults. So usually when you say it's a movie that both kids and adults can enjoy, what you mean is that Either the themes resonate with children or adults, and then there's something else that hooks the other one. So, a good example of this, Pixar movies are a great example. You can start parsing through. Most of those movies, the Pixar movies, minus probably like Cars, are actually movies with themes for that, that resonate closer to adults. You look at Up, right? Up is a movie about growing old, losing your spouse, and, like, what comes next in a chapter of your life. You look at Inside Out. It's about, like, um, it's about being 13 and having a bunch of emotions and being a parent and not know how to do it to deal with that. Like, it is – it is maybe it's a movie that 13-year-olds that watch that movie or 5-year-olds 
recognize the theme. I actually think it's more of a movie about childhood from an adult perspective that adults feel a connection with. Toy Story uh, – the Toy Story movies are a great example, especially Toy Story 3. That is a movie with theming that resonates with adults, not children, right? That That is about like giving up your toys. If you're a five-year-old seeing that – you might like lots of bear. You might like Barbie. You might like all that stuff. There's a lot that you're going to enjoy. It's bright colors. It's fun. There's funny dialogue. There's action figure type characters that you want. All the themes in that movie are not going to resonate with a with a five year old. When we talked about the work of Roald Dahl, The Witches is about being a kid from a kid's perspective. You and I can watch that movie and go, I remember what it was like to be a kid. I remember what it was like to have those feelings. We can watch all of the um, the special effects makeup and the performances and have a really good time with it, that is a movie where the themes itself are meant to resonate with a child. And what makes Coraline so special and so different from so many of those movies that usually have a theme that resonates with one or the other is that this has a theme that and, – and characters and a story that resonates with both children and adults differently. If you're a child and you're watching this movie, you are seeing a girl who feels like, again, very Roald doll perspective. My parents are boring. They're doing things that I don't understand or I don't care about. They don't love me in, in the way that I want them to love me. They're not showing me affection or spending time with me in the way I want them to do that. I would rather go explore a magical world, right? Alice in Wonderland, everything else. That is about if you're a kid and my, you know, watching that, you're feeling like, yeah, being a kid sucks sometimes. You're stuck in a house, you can't go play in the mud, and you're going around and just trying to find adventure. And this kid finds a cool adventure. So if you're a parent, she got dragged across <clears throat> the country by her boring ass parents. Yes. Yeah. Um, she doesn't have any new friends except for this weird kid that she actively pushes away. And uh, her parents don't really seem to have any interest in, once they dragged her out, doesn't really have any interest in living with her, at least from her perspective, at the yeah. beginning of the movie. A hundred percent. So, if you're a kid and you're watching that, like Roald Dahl, the adult world is boring or not what you want and you feel stuck inside it. And so, it's a movie about some a kid who feels stuck inside a boring adult world going and having adventures. That is a theme and an idea that resonates with any kid watching it. I guarantee that's one of the reasons that my my kids lobbed onto it. If you're a parent or an adult watching this, I think you have a whole different theme that you can explore. Sure, you can remember what it was like to be a kid and feel that way, but you as a parent, like being the type of um, parent that that you know, when when Coraline goes into the doorway and finds the other parents who's always playing songs with them and giving them adventures and baking them treats and creating this magical world, that is the ideal that you have in your head of what being a parent is like your ideal version of parent. I want this I want to always be having fun with my kid. I always want to be going on adventures with them. I want to have Great meals that I'm baking for them, like, you know, never boring stuff that they hate eating. And it'll be healthy or whatever else, but we're going to do all this stuff. And, like, the recognition of what you want to be as a parent, which is, like, the other, like, consistently, like, you know, that kind of thing. Besides all the evil and killing kids stuff. We'll get there. Um, 
versus what you always worry you are to your kids sometimes, which is, sorry, I don't have time to play with you. I'm working right now. Hey, sorry you hate this food. It's what we have from the grocery store. I'm not going to go make something else. You're just going to eat it and you're going to get sustenance and you're going to go and you're going to go to bed. Or, sorry, like, I understand when I was a kid why I would like to play in the mud, but I don't want you to play in the mud because, like, you're going to bring it all in the house. It's a pain in the butt to wash. Like, the last thing I want for is for you from a practical, logistical parenting perspective is to go splash around in the mud. And so, this movie kind of hits, I think, parents or maybe adults who are about to become parents or they, like – in that way of like grappling with how your kids may perceive you, even when you're doing um, the right or just the standard part being of adulthood that they can't understand really. Like, you know, I, I have work I have to do now. Hopefully I'm still finding the time to spend time with them. But you know, the fear as an adult is like your kids, come down and go, hey, dad, can we play? And it's like, sorry, I got to work on this thing. And like, that's some sort of like core memory from them about the time the dad chose work over over your kid or something like that. And then you have all those fears about like, I'm not going to care that I took some time to finish this spreadsheet or PowerPoint presentation in five years. But like, you know, if I went and played with my kid right now, that's going to be something I'm never going to regret doing. And so, like, all those those fears of, like, trying to be a good parent and dealing with an adult world that's boring and filled with rules and no fun and everything else is the fear of that. And so, this movie in an amazing way, both, like, obviously there's there's visual animation stuff, there's great scenes, there's things that, like, funny stuff that resonate with kids and adults differently. Um but ultimately, it is actually presenting the story of what it means to be a kid and what it means to be a parent separately and giving both people, both both age groups, actually something to chew on in a way that most movies that are for both kids and adults don't ever do. Yeah. And, and the, the fun thing about the movie is that it does not come – around to the movie does not come around to condemning the parents or condemning Coraline for their behavior right it's just that yeah. in the eventually they uh come to an understanding of each other and the parents journey is mostly off screen um yeah they, they just they, they're just working on a huge project and they need to get past that huge project before they can spend that time um and Coraline's recognition is not Hey, it's awesome that my parents are boring. I love boring parents and I love the shitty meals they make. Like yeah. that's not that's not Coraline's journey, and it's also not a particularly satisfying journey for kids. The journey at the end of the movie is like this subtler and more gentle sort of realization that like there's going to be periods of, of your life where you're not you're you're not the best parent or the best child you yeah. can be, and that like you're not always clicking with each other, but like as long as you don't give up on each other, like Eventually, you come closer. Yeah. So, I saw I, I, I saw a statistic recently. I'm not totally sure how they calculated it, but essentially that um, millennial men spend as much as three times more time with their children mm-hmm. than our parents did or our, great, our, our uh, grandparents did. Um, 
So uh, they were clocking it at the 60s, 70s. Um, and that the idea is that um, millennial men are more willing to not just participate in, like, you know, household duties and like yeah. participate more more of those activities. Like, that's part of the math. But, like, the millennial men consider themselves part of the part of the mix. And they're willing to make sacrifices, like, at work in particular, or personal sacrifices. They're willing to give up a poker game or whatever yeah. uh, to actually spend more time with their kids. Um, and I, I, I think that... Um, a lot of us that were raised by boomers really recognize that, like, I don't, I have never told my boss no in in my entire career. Why would I start it today? Because yep. my son has a birthday party or whatever, right? Like, um, it's, uh, it's one of those things that, like, while I love my parents and I think they did a good job, um, like, it's one of those things that, like, growing up, I was like, yeah. My dad wasn't around that much, or like when he yeah. was home, he was always fucking working in his office and his computer. Like, yeah. And I'm not why was that's it, a bad he thing. wanted me to be interested in stuff that he liked? Why did he want to be interested in the stuff that I liked? Right? Yes. Like, yeah, we'll yes. go do this because I like doing it, not because you like doing it. Yeah, yeah, and and like, um, I love my dad and I have a good relationship, but with him, this is not griping about my father hour. But it's um. The point is that, like, I think generationally we have become more like the the parents that Coraline would want, which is kind of yep. funny. But, like, still, any parent, any given parent, you have a day where you're just like, yep. I need to do my fucking job or we don't have a roof over our heads. <laughs> like, yeah. Every day. Or uh, Coraline, <clears throat> I just got over food poisoning and right now the only thing that we can eat as a family is canned chicken noodle soup yeah i can't stand over the stove for three hours making you whatever the fuck you want yeah. because i felt i was just sick i just had the worst day in the world at work like something like something has to give at some point you cannot be the perfect version yeah the of the you cannot be the other mother every single day yes. of every single uh, child's life. Well, and it's it's it reminds me a little bit like the other mother turns out to be a terrible parent, obviously, because there's always she starts strong though. She starts strong. I I always think about the Onion article. I don't know if you remember; it's an older one, but like uh, fun dad, actually terrible father. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know that there's there's a balance to all those things, and yes, and obviously that's also the Mean Girls thing. I'm a fun mom. Yeah, you like anyone that introduces themselves as a fun mom or dad um, is suspect because like you you're not going to be friends with your kids, right? And like having expectations to be friends with your kids are 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 wrong, and you know it. It also like it just it 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 it's making them seem like you're equal with them. You have a degree of power over your children especially in their younger years, that if you act like you don't have or that like, yeah, they understand that I can ground them at any time and take away all their stuff, but we're buds. Like, that's not the relationship you have with your buds. I'm sorry. Like, Peter, we're friends. I can't ground you from podcasting if you do something that upsets me or I don't like have the, hey, just stop texting me for now. I'm in the middle of something. Like, why can't you just calm down or something like that? And so, like, it just it, – it misrecognizes a power balance and that doesn't mean that you can't do fun things or like – I think sometimes people confuse like treating your children like human beings with thoughts and feelings and perspectives that are valid and matter 
is is the same as like, well, I treat him like a friend and I care what my friends say or whatever else. And so I, I the millennial thing doesn't surprise me because I think boomers and the great generation before too, and ever you know, everyone else, especially as the gender roles were more defined by society, um that you know, there was this idea, I think, of dads as like, hey, as long as I'm putting a roof over your head and food, my kid might not like me now, but later on, he's going to look back on this and he's going to go, wow, my dad slaved away at that office to put food on the plate and and a roof over the head, our head and go on a family vacation, you know, once a year or something like that. And so my kid is going to look back and be in awe. And some of that is because, for whatever reason, boomer dads did do that with their dads. Like, in my experience, boomer dads, even though they will describe a terrible relationship with their parents growing up, somehow came around to the realization that my parents just – yeah, they didn't talk to me and they didn't care about me and everything else, but they really gave me a good life that I'm 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 happy about. And is so, that like, partially because when people are approaching death, so their parents are approaching death, they mythologize themselves, and oh, then the kids just pick up on that. I actually haven't read as much as I'd like to to understand why. I think boom, the boomer generation as a whole came away from recognizing they had sh- pretty shitty parents in general, sometimes very abusive, very defined by uh, gender roles and stuff like that, and came away going like, my dad killed it. <laughs> like, I, like I didn't, I didn't appreciate it at the time, but like they, they have a sense of nostalgia for it. I, 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 I've read a lot about boomers feeling that way and I've recognized it in my own life but I'm not I'm not entirely sure why they came away with that and I think they expected the same thing and then saw like incremental improvements through that right is it because their like, great grandparents were such shitty parents I mean, maybe, they were like dad wow. never hit us with a shovel he only hit us with his belt and only when he was really <laughs> angry uh, when he was just somewhat angry he just swore at us and left to go get yeah. cigarettes for a week um <laughs> Only when we did things like yeah. talk in church did he bring the belt out, you yeah. know. You know, because for God was. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah so, that generation does have a hard time talking shit about their parents. It, it's, it's maybe weird. it's because their parents were literally called the greatest generation and that fucked them <laughs> up from a propaganda standpoint. But um, I, I don't know. But I think they thought like, hey, not only am I providing for my kids occasionally – I'll give them an attaboy. <laughs> and like, that's so much. My parents never gave me an attaboy. And I love my parents now. So I'm I'm doing some attaboys. And I'm providing. My kids are going to look back and love it. Instead, we all looked back. Not all of us. This is broad generalizations. I get it. A lot of us looked back and went, what the fuck was that? Like, yeah. Uh, yeah I don't care that you put roof, a roof over our head. That was your job. That's what you signed up for to have kids. Like, and maybe it is something about like the 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 idea of like pro choice and like people choose to have kids and I think our generation was raised more on that and so we have a little more of a hey you chose to have me dumb yeah. dumb fuck like th- those things like food and shelter and clothing and working and paying bills were the minimum that you had to do to keep me alive and so like I'm not going to look back and be grateful for that part what I would have liked is occasionally 
caring about my feelings in any capacity. And so, <laughs> like, I, I you think- know who's also ungrateful? Every dog I've ever had. Yeah, yeah. You know who's also never ungrateful? wrote me one thank you note. Who's <laughs> also ungrateful? My car. I yeah. changed the oil on that fucker twice a year, and, and it never, it never thanks me. Yeah, I, 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 and again, I don't know if I've actually read some interesting things that like the, the commonality or the cultural acceptance of the idea that like having children is a choice as opposed to an obligation is like very responsible for some of those changing dynamics because like. Uh, if you couldn't get an abortion, you couldn't get birth control. Kids, and you got married. Kids were almost not a choice. It's like, hey, I'm doing, I'm doing pretty good, keeping all six of these little fuckers fed that I didn't even want in the first place. Whereas, like for our generation, we see having kids as more of like something we can opt into or not opt into or change our minds about when we want to opt into. So we kind of recognize that like it's not a privilege for parents to do the minimum of parenting. Uh, that's the expectation and then like the the rest of it is a, the responsibility to like put effort into raising a well-rounded kid so i do think that is fundamentally the difference yeah yeah perhaps um so i want to jump back a little bit because we're definitely going to come back to the themes of parenting and what it means to be a kid and the perspectives there because we're going to walk through the fucking movie i also want to jump i want to i want to talk about the context in which this movie is made obviously um, similar to The Witches, um, the um, key creator behind this, so I guess Jim Henson in The Witches case, but Henry Selleck in this case, um, got the rights to make this movie years before they actually, yeah. they actually did. Um, and it wasn't like in 2003, Henry Selleck immediately started making uh, little Coraline dolls, right? Um, there was discussions during this window about whether or not it would be a live action movie, which... There's no version of this movie in 2004 or whatever that's a live action movie that's good, right? There's no. No, you almost have to go like pre 92 or. Yes. Or, or it needs like to be post 2010. Yeah. Like, I, I'm picturing Time Bandits. Like, I'm picturing like like an 80s. Fa- I'm picturing if like. If this was like Scorpion story. King era CGI, this would be the most unwatchable movie on the face of the Oh, and it would also have that post... I mean, I like these movies, but, like, that post-Fight Club, Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou, digital color correction, and it would be, like, harsh greens and harsh blues for every scene. It would be... It would be... It's all all DV camera directed by Michael Mann. I don't know where she is. Honestly, I I don't know where she is. I have less of an affection of those movies than you do, but... I love those movies. But anyways, the point is, the point is, um, yeah, I don't see a version of this that was live action in 2004 that was good because that was the era where they were like, computers can do everything. Um, and uh, they actually, in 2004, they really couldn't. They really um, couldn't. Someone should have said something. <laughs> and uh, this movie was, is instrumentally huge for a number of people that are kind of Hollywood legends and a number of institutions that are Hollywood legends. Like, So, obviously, um, this movie came out of uh, Leica. Mm -hmm. Um, Leica, excuse me. Um, And uh, Leica is a, like, it's like Aardman, Leica. Like, who's doing stop motion with this legitimacy anymore, right? Like, there was a brief period of time where Tim Burton thought that his return back to um, you know, relevance was through stop motion animation movies. He made a couple good, but not great ones. 
Um, I like Frank and Weenie and I like Corpse Bride. I don't love them. Um, I think people are way too harsh on both those movies. As someone who watched them Yeah, they're both fine. I watched them both last year for Spooktober and I was like, why are people so mean to these movies? They're stop motion animation movies. I do think we get though, like, like we get like one every five years. Like, do, what we, are you doing? But those are both three star movies, and I think like stop motion animation was something that I didn't have much of an affection for as a kid. I actually sometimes was annoyed by it when it's like, oh shoot, this is stop motion animation. Um, well, and, and maybe that's because I watched your a lot first of- exposure was probably the garbage um, uh, uh, Rankin and Bass shit, right? I mean, it was that Gumby shit was definitely in the mix there. Um, the At thing least I, Gumby was surreal. The thing I did really like um, was they did a f- uh, Frog and Toad series. Um, they had James Earl Jones, I think, like introduced the story that was in stop motion. You can find it on YouTube in like the worst possible copies of all time. Um, but yeah, I think like when I saw that and then I saw everything I was watching on Saturday morning, whether it was Ninja Turtles or Transformers or like going to the movies to see like Little Mermaid, I was like, I'd rather just do it, do it normal, <laughs> you know, like I didn't, which I didn't have now the, that's rare. I didn't, ha- I didn't have the appreciation for it. Um, and, and so I like, did, I grew up with like Nightmare Before Christmas yeah. and I grew up with like, um, on, like, Nickelodeon, there were random stop-motion animation shows and even dinky stuff. Or, like, yeah. was it Kablam? Like, there were, like, sh- shows like that that would have, like, weird little stop-motion animation bits. Um, I also grew up, before I turned 10, I had one of those Lego movie setup kits. So, I was making stop-motion animation oh, movies. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Where, like, a little Lego guy would chase a guy on a bike and then kick him yeah. off the bike and... Um, I, I I did grow up, I guess, like uh, just a few years later, and my exposure to stop motion was like strong enough that like by the time that like I started to see Wallace and Gromit shit, I was like, absolutely, this is catnip for me. This isn't ruined. Yeah, I don't I think I, I don't Frosty think I see in all those though. Not Frosty, excuse me. Um, uh, Rudolph, Rudolph, and stuff. I like Frosty's Rudolph. hand drawn. Um, I liked because I liked any Christmas special. Although I, I recognize those are all very bad in general uh, now. Even though I still watch them occasionally. Um, Some good yeah, songs. Uh, yeah, I. I mean, I think I liked Nightmare before. Like I said, I, I saw it and I liked it, and I. But it wasn't like something we owned, and it wasn't something I watched over and over again until I had my own kids, and it became like, like oh. After we watch Coraline, we need a break from Coraline. You watch Nightmare Before before Christmas. I think part of the reason those Burton movies get so much crap is that, like, same reason, like, why Sky – what was it called? Sky Blue or Fox uh, Studios Animation gets crap mm. uh, compared to Pixar's because, like, some of those movies are fine. But, like, when you hold up, up against Pixar, which especially for a long run there was, like, producing, like – consistently some of the best animated and just movies of all time and it was computer animation when you see like an ice age or you see like an over the hedge it's like you're trying to ape a formula that um and you're not doing as good of a job so i i think part of the reason that burton stuff is that obviously henry selick did two of the movies that i think people think oh is that burton i don't know how many people thought Coraline was Burton adjacent, but, you know, most people, I think if you went in the street and said, who directed Nightmare Before Christmas, most people would say Tim Burton. And I do think that Laika, what has made, I haven't seen Missing Link, um, but between Coraline, Paranorman, The Box Rolls, and Kubo, 
I think Coraline's the best and like, you know, I'd go Kubo, probably Paranorman and Box Trolls. They're all really fucking great. So <laughs> I do think like Burton being like, hey. We almost covered Paranorman this month. Yeah, I, I do think Burton coming back and being like, you know, post Coraline wanting to do the corpse bread. I think I have that timing correct. I think it was like, oh, he's trying to get back in on this thing now that it has some popular and he's kind of doing a worse version of it. So I agree those I think movies Frank are and fine. Is- I think Frank and Weenie is secretly underrated. When I, I watched too. Frank and Weenie, I was like, this is actually really good. Corpse Bride is a what you're describing, absolutely. Like, I think Corpse Bride is one of those movies where you're like, I love the animation. Aesthetically, it's really gorgeous. But, like, is this Burton just trying to, like, ring some old bells and see if anyone yeah. hears them? I also think Frank and Weenie suffered from the fact that by, by the time that movie came out, people were just done with Tim Burton. Uh, <laughs> And I a hundred percent agree. That yeah. was like when Tim Burton had like completely lost even the people like me who were like oh, maybe still no, a vi- maybe visual yeah visualist yeah. Um, but I, I do think Frank Frank Winnie's probably the best movie he's done in fifteen years. Besides since Big Fish, I'd have to look. We did a Burton like holy shit it's shit 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 for. <laughs> at some point, but I mean, it's, I mean, Frank Winnie is, is okay. Um, the last uh, thing yeah. I want to talk about before we get into the movie more proper is that uh, just a quick, have you read the book? I have not. I've not read this book. Okay. So I read it to Maya. Um, and the thing about the book and why I completely agree with Neil Gaiman is um, the, it, the book, the movie covers almost everything that's in the book. Plus, it adds a lot of good character growth. I think some important side characters. It's almost like YB wasn't in the book. YB's not in the book. Mostly talks to herself. Yeah, uh, I do think like if you like, I'm not saying that like this is how you should think of art, but almost everything that's in Coraline the book is in the movie, and then a lot more really good, interesting decisions and choices and characters and moments and better written lines it's 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 a it's a great example of you almost don't need to read the book because the book is not doing anything different the book the movie is Coraline plus right you get everything that's in the book plus all this other stuff that is also really good plus an amazing visualization of everything that's being described so you know um the book is fun. Was fun to read with to my kids because I love the movie and and stuff like that. I will also say that if my even though theoretically the book is written for probably like eight, eight to eleven year olds, and I, I think I read it to Maya when she was probably seven. Um, I do think that the book is less interesting. Like I, I think. Maya would not have been able to stay as focused on it if she didn't know what was going on from watching the movie as many times as she did. I, I think it's I think it's it's kind of written in a way that a twelve and a thirteen year old would get a lot from it, but it's kind of meant for th- kids of a younger age. So um, G- Neil Gaiman was right. The movie, uh, the book is good. Obviously, it's it's still got the core story and it's interesting and stuff like that. It, but it is one of it's one of the rare things where. You should almost read the book first because you're going to like the movie more. I would be surprised if I met anyone that thinks that the book is better than the movie. Normally, it's the opposite. Normally, they say, hey, go see the movie and then go read the book because the book is going to be so much better. This is a rare inverse of that where the movie is so much better than the book that reading the book after the movie feels superfluous in a way that sometimes people feel the reverse. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, I'll definitely get to it in the next few years. Cause Is that what uh, you got from I'll that? I'll have more opportunity. <laughs> right. Right. Um, just said, don't read it. <laughs> just watch yeah. the movie again. Uh, no, yeah. it's, it's fine. I, I think, yeah. yeah, I think, um, it's, it's also important to note here that like, we're talking about Henry Selleck who has made his career and as a diehard animation dork yeah. and he was brought on when uh, Leica was formed and they decided they were making full length uh, stop motion animation pictures. He was brought on as like a guiding artistic voice when the money came back in through Travis Knight's dad. Um, yeah. Uh, through Chili T's dad. Um Henry Selleck was part of the journey to be like, let's use these immense resources to like make this industry exist and to get these fucking animators working because these, there's the industry was too inconsistent for them to be working. And a few of the projects that Leica took over, took up over the years were literally just like, we have immensely talented animators not doing a fucking thing right now. Yeah. Like, let's just start production on something and get it rolling. Um, and, uh, so we can, we can keep the shop together and keep this, yeah. this journey together. So Leica is truly like a, it's like, it should be state funded. Like it's, yeah. it's keeping a particular I agree. form alive. That I'm glad highly- that it's, it, everyone always constantly thinks about shutting it down. So I, uh, I'm glad to see they have two upcoming movies in production, especially considering missing link, which was their attempt to like finally get a big hit, not just a modest one, so they invested more in the budget. They brought in all these other people. When you look at the budgets for like um, box trolls or paranormal, they're like sixty million, and they made like seventy. Or Kubo, they made and they made anywhere from like seventy to one hundred and twenty. So like break even or a little bit more, and then they put a hundred plus million into Missing Link to be like, we're doing it. We're gonna have a big hit, and it made twenty six million dollars worldwide. How, how did? How did Leica and Ardman just both of them every time they're like we're gonna make something big for everybody and it ends up being fairly middling and for what it's worth yeah the rev- I mean, I'm sure the reviews didn't help I have it's the one I haven't seen because everyone's like I haven't seen that one and I have not seen Box Trolls actually Box Trolls is really good you should you is should Box Trolls it. Spooktober approved or should I watch it after uh, I think I think you could watch it for Spooktober. Yeah, okay. it's. It, I mean, it's about trolls that live in boxes and scare kids. Like, I, I think you can. I think you can get that one in. Uh, Selleck took a long. He it's not anything he's made that many movies. He's been working since he did um, animation for Disney in the eighties. Um, but he, um, or actually in the seventies, he did some stuff on Pete's Dragon in nineteen seventy seven, which is which is his first credit. Um, but then he's always been not that prolific. He did Nightmare on Before Christmas in 93, which we covered on the show. Then three years later did James and the Giant Peach, which I just actually rewatched again with Elliot. And she liked it quite a bit. Did Monkey Bone, which everyone – I've never seen Monkey Bone. Every few years, someone's like, this has got to be a secret classic that audiences didn't get. And then they watch it and they're always like, no, it's a piece of shit. So at some point, <laughs> I want to get to it because it's the only one of his movies – uh, I haven't seen, but it does feel like even people that are like, this has got to be interesting, uh, leave disappointed. Coral, it took, a, it took an eight-year break, and then Coraline came out, and then took a – surprisingly, did not – he kept being attached to random stuff like um, The Little Nightmares was going to have a TV adaptation, that video game, that 2D like – 
Um, I would love to see him do that. The aesthetic of those games is great. It is. It is. Um, But finally, last year did Wendell and Wild that got released to Netflix, which I love quite a bit, but feels like it had a very – didn't go to theaters and feels like it had a very subdued reaction. But I think there's no argument from our perspective. His unqualified masterpiece is Coraline. Peter, are you ready to talk more about Coraline? Yeah. My father can't play piano. No need to. This piano plays me. Making up a song about Coraline. She's a peach, she's a doll, she's a pal of mine. She's as cute as a button in the eyes of everyone who ever laid their eyes on Coraline. When she comes around, it's boring, Mom, and I will never Peter! Yeah. So this movie... Yeah, what do you want? What? This movie is stop motion. And I'm saying go motion. Do more I know, movies it, like it, it should be called go motion. At no point does it <laughs> stop. Um, but yeah, what is what is the plot of Coraline? Um, so, I can do it. Sure. Go ahead. Coraline? She's Jump. a special little girl. She moves from Michigan to uh, the uh, Pacific Portland Northwest area, Hillsboro, Hillsboro, um, which is also where they produce this movie in a massive uh, warehouse. Wow, it's like uh, location uh, nepotism. <laughs> um, I mean, it also you know like uh, it shows like it's a movie that's very very much about a rainy. Uh, sort of uh, dark, gloomy kind of place. And she moved from Michigan. Uh, she left some friends behind. Um, and she is bored as shit. She's a little grumpy. And she's also in those adolescent years where she's just like really hard to please. And yeah. her parents aren't trying that hard. So, no. Um, they got their own stuff. Is... They just moved. They're trying to do a project <laughs> in gardens and write on old timey computers. Yes. And they have a job. Starting up a zine for gardening. <laughs> Her parents suck. I take back everything I said. Yeah, they're, they like gardening. We had to um, move to start a zine. Okay, mom and dad. They like gardening academically, but not <laughs> figuratively, uh, which is like how most people are like. They like, the, they like the hands-on part of gardening, but they don't like learning like... Okay, to make this plant really thrive, you need this percent percent oil acidity. They only like the nerdy, boring parts of gardening. They don't like mud. They don't like digging holes. They don't like the actual parts of gardening that almost everybody enjoys. Um, Yeah. Uh, We should say the parents, the voice cast in this is great. Um, uh, Also a very 2000s. Yeah. John John Hodgman is the father. Mm -hmm. Uh, Terry Hatcher who uh, was abducted by aliens right after this and no one's ever seen her again. Um, uh, I like Terry Hatcher a lot, but she just has, She did not I mean, get she, her she's got de- She's got desperate housewives money. She doesn't need to work all the time. Her The, the Superman to her lowest lane is, is, garbage, is a garbage man now. I don't know if that has anything to do with it. It probably doesn't at all, but worth, worth calling out because Dean Cain, Zane or Cain, baby, always Zane <laughs> now. Um, uh, and uh, it's, He went a little insane. Is it Dakota Fanning? Do I have the right Fanning? It's Dakota Fanning. Again, this is a very... Of its zero cast. This is Dakota Fanning in her transitional state from, like, adorable child actor to, like, 
doing some weird stuff before she takes a break from acting. Yeah. As opposed to her sister, who did, like, some child acting, and then she just came on the scene as a weird actor, just got it out of the way... Started doing Neon Demon, like, right at the beginning. They're really, like, they're, they're, they're Olsen twins, right? Like, one, one, the Olsen twins had a, had a child career and not much of an adult career, and then their younger, younger sister had mostly an adult career. Um, that's the way it works. You can only have, you only have one kid, unless you're a Hemsworth, and then you just don't stop. Uh, or a Skarsgård, I guess. Um, uh, I think but, the, the Scars Guards are an interesting family. There's a new like, one every week. Yeah. Those guys. And, the, and, and they do a different thing, right? Like, one is like the Turbo Viking honk. Um, one looks like he goes through your trash and smells your uh, thrown away socks. Um, but in a way, you want to have sex with them, you know? Yeah. Um, and one's just Stellan. He's just being Stellan. And then there's at least two more that I can't make. The Daddy Skarsgård. Um, yeah, so voice caster Keith David also has the cat. Fantastic casting. Uh, I, I don't know if you know this. If you put Keith David in anything, it's just a good good casting decision. I don't care what the part is. It um, really doesn't matter. Voice cast, though, you're going you're gonna to get a home run every time because he has one of the best voices out there. He was he was also a mainstay in video game uh, voice casting for a while. Oh yeah. Um, he was Saints Row, Mass Sa- Effect, like yeah. he did he did a bunch of video game series voices and anytime he's in there, you're like, "Oh, there's like a video game actor." And then there's Keith David. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 100% right. Um so yeah, so she's bored, she finds a well, she meets uh Wait, is his name's not Whitey. <laughs> It's his YB, which is YB, short for Wyborn, yeah. and she immediately twists the knife, and she's like, "Oh, your name's like, why were you even born?" Yeah, yeah. I mean, she's a thirteen-year-old. <laughs> she's mean to her friend. She's she's great in this part because I like the, the what they do with YB here because they're not letting Coraline off the hook. She also has to stop being a bit of a dick. Yeah, but YB's creepy. He is. Uh, he shows up with a mask and a motorcycle. But yeah, he was an invention for this movie, which again is let's uh, instead of, you know, in a book, you get to hear uh, the main character's thoughts uh, and perspective. And this gives her a chance to kind of tell her life to someone else. But yeah, the, the house is like a shared house. It's like a fourplex. The other people that live in this house are like retired Oregon artists that never made it big i mean that's very like russian circus artists yeah there's a there's there's like a trapeze guy and then there's sorry there's like a lion tamer type guy who sets up like um what do you call a mouse tamer i don't know i think he's an animal trainer yeah he's a a carnival circus with animals with mice or rats or whatever uh, and then there's two former, like, singers who remind me a little bit of the sisters from, if you ever watched Pushing Daisies. The, um, same same thing. Yeah. Would not be surprised if, uh, would not be surprised if there was some some inspiration. For- I'm, I'm not sure which way it would go, but definitely I feel like there has to be some. The book came first, but the yeah. visuals of the movie came later, obviously. Yeah. Both of my children learned what boobs are from this movie. Um, it I- is a weird thing. We talked there's about that. Do you remember when we did the old, black cauldron? Do you remember movie? when we talked about the black cauldron and we're like, there's I forget there's like a witch who like just has the the most enormous uh, cleavage uh, in the entire world, and we were like joking about like some 
backroom Disney executive just being like bigger. Um, <laughs> and I, I think that's what what happened here. But I did so on this. Gotta one, have uh, something. You know, the dads they're having a long day. Their wife was their wife their wife was crying at them all night. Take the kids to the movies, Tony. Like, shut up, Maria. I'll take the kids to the movies. And those guys, they're going to be sitting in their seats, bored as shit, watching your movie. Yeah. Bored as shit. Give them a little something. For, give them a little something for daddy. I did. A little something for daddy. This watch, uh, I did. Uh, Maya was indisposed uh, with a friend. And so I watched it with my five-year-old. And she, she very, she was like, those are. They've got huge boobs, was I think, <laughs> what she said. It's, so it's, it's not – it's like it's so prevalent that even a kid is like – and because they're – especially in one of their sequences, they're wearing like slits to cover the nipples. Uh, and then so you see like – you see like 90% of, of the boobs. Um, yep. Uh, yeah. So it's uh, – if you like stop motion animation giant boobs, I honestly like – I can't think of a better – movie if that's your primary goal to see a movie yeah if you want to see claymation jugs this is not what you're looking for because they're stop motion they're little puppets yeah but um it's gonna get you in the neighborhood yeah it'll it'll get you there um so they there's also a cat who does not talk in the real world but is a is a mysterious cat black cat that is prowling around so she can't go out on a rainy day she starts exploring her house, like all kids do, and especially old. I remember getting a new house. Uh, I feel like now, like houses are pretty cookie cutter. There's no nooks and crannies. But when I was growing up, I think our house was like made in 1902, and it was a weird three story. And there's always like some closet that has another door in the back, and all that other weird shit that was put together yeah. at the turn of the century or added on later as technology changed. And she, you know, there's some funny. And I stuff. think that they used to, they used to like not have. You would just buy an old house and then you would just fix things as you go. But now the new, the new model is like they you have rip, to maximize. Yeah. Every square footage, we need to gut flip it so that we can charge you every penny that we paid plus another $100,000 or $200,000. Like, the the style has changed. But, like, yeah, I remember growing up, people being like, we moved into a new house. And then, like, the attic would lead to a weird playroom that was, like, had wallpaper from the 60s. And then, like, the mom would be like, don't go in there. We haven't, like, checked if... Don't don't lick the wallpaper, please. Yeah, exactly. Like, and if it's sweet, definitely stop. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I like the idea that those older houses, like, look, it's World War I, Great Depression. They're like, these kids, people are too uh, poor to afford toys. Even, we don't even care about kids enough to even really get them toys. Let's build all our houses with little mysteries for them to <laughs> to explore. Uh, but she finds a wallpapered over tiny door um, and she bugs her mom to open it. Um, and so she looks in this drawer full of old keys. I remember when we moved into one of our old houses, there was a skeleton key, which is so so funny to think that, like, yeah, this is the key that opens all the stuff that you'll find in this house that's locked. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. Um, sure. Uh, I also love the mom is so overworked. This is a great piece of animation. The mom is so overworked that her immediate impulse in this house that they just rented, she's like, fine. And she just slits open the door. Yeah. <laughs> she uh, cuts through the wallpaper immediately. She's like, you know what? Fucking fine. If this is what's going to entertain you, great. Yeah. Uh, it's a great piece of animation. It is. Uh, it's bricks behind there. There's nothing there. 
So her one exciting mystery was solved, but very the agents are coming to kill Coraline. But very importantly, they do not close and relock the door. Um, that night. Oh, the other thing we should mention is that at one point, she, the opening credits is actually them assembling a doll, like metallic yes. hands assembling a doll. And she finds this Coraline doll that looks exactly like her, except it has button eyes. No one is perplexed. I know <laughs> I know the parents think that her new friend made it for him, but it's, it is like if I – these no one in this movie has seen a horror movie. If you find a doll that looks exactly like you and has button eyes, like move. Get out. <laughs> Right away, like do not. I'm not even just saying put the doll down. I'm saying yeah. put the state down. Yeah, just, just get out. Just, just go back. Forget about your gardening zine uh, and leave. Uh, that night, she Michigan's gonna come back, man. Yeah, just that... wait like 15 years. Yeah, that night a kangaroo mouse wakes her up, and she follows it into the door that is now a almost like going on the inside of a worm uh, through like a, a tunnel. Um, into the other side of the door. And when she shows up there, it's it's the same house, but it's instead of like the dull, drab, grays and undecorated and moldy food that we see, it's bright, it's lively. And she walks into the kitchen and sees what she thinks initially is her mom cooking a huge, giant meal. And we had just got through a thing of like her mom not liking to cook. So she's surprised by that. Mom turns around, looks exactly like her mom, more smiles, happier disposition, no bags under her eyes, but has buttons for eyes and explains the concept of the movie that – uh, I'm not your mother, dear. I'm your other mother. Everyone has an other mother. And uh, go get your other father to go get dinner. And is a good correlation between the beginning of a Coraline nation, if you will, uh, of the beginning where she, you know she walks into her dad in the study and doesn't have time to deal with her. And now she walks in and sees her dad also has button eyes, who's playing a giant piano in a Hugh Hefner row. And he's like, she's like, my dad can't play piano. And he's like, well, that's fine. The piano plays me. And then they play the other, she he plays the other father song, which is about a 40 second song that uh, was written and sung by They Might Be Giants. Uh, yeah, John Linnell. Yeah. It's so funny, too, because like John Linnell's singing voice sounds like it could be John Hodgman's singing voice. Like what a perfect. And apparently John Hodgman sang the song and uh, John Hodgman sang the song in the studio. Uh, and then uh, he when he was sitting in the theater watching the movie with like somebody, yeah. his like wife or whatever, he was like, oh, they they hired a professional to, to do this. <laughs> I mean, okay. that, yeah. Uh, I will just note that that song one year was my most listened to song on Spotify. Um, it's 40 seconds and my kids would want to hear it over and over. And it is an incredibly catchy song. It's a great little lullaby if you want to sing it to your kids because it's like it's so funny and charming and stuff like that. Um, Apparently they wrote a bunch of more songs or or drafts of songs for Coraline, but like stylistically they only yeah. wanted like one song like this in it and it really stands out as this adorable little welcome to yeah. this dream world that is not what it actually appears and again it's it's the kid fantasy right it's the here's my dad singing a song about how much he loves me and how proud he is to have me and his daughter in this little 40 second uh blip so it's fantastic uh for a long time it wasn't available on spotify uh it is 
it is now, but there was a while where my kids were actually, I shouldn't even say they were listening to the other father song from this movie. There was a cover version on Coral, uh, on Spotify that was like my most listened to song of 2018 or something like that. Um, so yeah. And then, and then, uh, her mom's like, go out and explore the world. And, and, you know, instead of the drab shitty garden that they can't be bothered to do is this wonderful blooming garden. Like it looks magical. The moon looks magical. Um, but pretty quickly she, as she explores, she walks away from the house only to end up back at the house. And that's when the cat played by Keith David starts giving some warnings about the other mother and what she's interested in and that she doesn't like cats and she might not have the best of intentions. And to clarify, the cat is the only cat in the Coraline are the only people in the dream world that don't have button eyes. Yep. Everybody else is Everything under else. the sway yep. of the other mother, which you'll eventually find out has a name, the bell Dom, which is very cool that like, yep. you know, Gaiman was like, Oh, this demon has a demon name. Yeah. We're not, ju- we're not just going with like, you know, sort of g- generic, uh, g- generic, uh, familial titles. We're going to go with, uh, we're going to go with that. But, um, yeah, uh, just, okay. just skip ahead to that. Like, so the other mother yeah. is like a metallic spider demon who constantly as children move into the house. Uh, and again, very heavy concepts for a, for a, for a child. My, you know, that my little kids are watching this. Um, Essentially, like, showers them with love until they commit to leaving their families and their parents behind, uh, which is like, you know, this is like parental love bombing, essentially, and agree to the only price for uh, living a wonderful existence, a dream kid existence with parents that love you and do things for you all the time and are solely focused on you is to take your eyes out and have them replaced with buttons, which is incredibly gruesome. I know, I, th- I think your wife has an eye thing, if I remember correctly, when it comes oh, to... Oh, it's my, it's my brother. It's your brother. Uh, yeah, he even in stuff like this, he's like, oh, oh. It, I mean, it I is mean, for like, even though they, there's not a seed of anyone's eyeballs getting written up and sewing button eyes, the concept alone, it's hard not to visualize. And it's terrifying for kids. Like, yeah, like the, it, it's it is a big price to play the concept of having your eyeballs ripped out and having buttons sewn into them. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's very, it's very terrifying. And there's a line at about 50 minutes into the movie because for there's an ominous feeling, right? They yeah. show you everything is beautiful and sprightly, but these they have these creepy little button eyes, right? That's yeah. the only real indicator that the, this world would be off to a kid. And there's a line that John Hodgman says when they're trying to pitch Coraline, mm-hmm. the other mother and the other father are trying to kitch, pitch uh, Coraline and the idea of peace, peacefully accepting having button eyes. That's the, what you need to do to stay here. Yeah. And he says... And he says with that typical John Hodgman sort of uh, uh, beautiful sort of, and he's ring. really it doing sounds... a sing songy drawl as the as the yes, father. and he and he has it, the the thing about John Hodgman is he can have like sort of a comedic or satiric kind of quality to his voice, but it also has this sort of like warm literary sound. So sharp, you won't feel a thing. Yeah, I'm terrifying. And then the other mother is like, that came out bad. Like she, she immediately she pushes she him that. away. She, yeah. she pushes him away. And I think that the, the, the button thing is 
extremely good fairy tale making. And I'll tell I'll tell you why. So actually, look really quickly a detail that they she also says. They don't have to be black. They could be whatever color suits your fancy. Yeah. They could be chartreuse. And they name a bunch of magenta or whatever. Yeah. They name a bunch of, of you know. Just say yellow. Uh, fancy colors. Um, yeah. Uh, orangey pink. Mm-hmm. Whatever color they said in the middle. Um, and the buttons are such an expert sort of uh, storytelling note from Neil Gaiman, which is that um, button eyes are something you sew on a doll as a mask or a simulacra of eyes. These are not actual eyes. These are just sort of supposed to represent eyes. They they can't see through these button eyes. Um, These eyes were placed there by a creator. Um, And they're not not real eyes. They're not uh, tools that a human being could use to, to see. Someone else is selecting your reality. Someone else is seeing for you. Someone else is your sense, your senses. Mm. Um, and in this case, uh, the mother is essentially saying, all you got to do is give up your sense of reality, your senses, your your good sense to not do this. Yeah. Uh, all you got to do is give that up and you can live in my reality. And there's no humanity here. Yeah. Right. The human. We always say like eyes are the window to the soul and such. And, and uh, like. There's no humanity here anymore. There's just this mask of reality or a mask of humanity. It's, yeah. it's it's such a cool way to center the movie on this piece of horror. A hundred percent. And you find out that essentially this whole world is kind of controlled by her, but not necessarily controlled by her in the sense that she's, she's essentially creating um, life simulation? out of dust. I mean, yeah, simulation. Um, what's the... Um, almost like golems i guess like of yeah of of sand and life and, and bringing them to life but they have no control they don't have agency really but they but they aren't so much under control like they're not puppets they are they are dolls that, that she's given instructions to and so they're um, automatons with a spark of life and how they use that spark of life just depends yeah, yeah um but it, you know, they're still designed based on versions of them in the real world. So the father is kind of complicit and doesn't have a strong will. And uh, YB, who is ends up there, eventually is like trying to to help her a little bit, much like the YB in in the real world. But the idea is that once you accept the button eyes, this isn't like spelled out extremely clearly. But I, she kind of like. I think it's a little more spelled out in the book, but she essentially sucks their life force through love. Like she's, she, you know, the thing about love is that it's, there's that idea of like, you know, everyone has as much love to give as they want and it's infinite. And she is essentially taking love as a resource and using it to sustain herself and grow and grow more powerful, which is a very mm-hmm. selfish way to experience life. I'm going to take this love, and instead of, like, I'm going to literally hide it under a bushel and keep it for myself as opposed to, like, you know, what what love should be. And uh, that as she's done this to other kids, using the doll to spy on them and to incent them and to start doing all that stuff, she, she kills them. Coraline eventually meets three ghost children who are tethered to this void of a world um, that the other mother has tripped in the same way that she has to Coraline, except they made the decision, uh, which has to be of your free will, which is very classic fairy tale 
uh, plotting to do that. So that's where it's all going. We should say that Coraline goes back and forth a lot. And again, the contrast, even when she starts to see some weird stuff, is 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 obvious. The parents are still ignoring. You know, it's that thing of like you have a really good time and you come back and you tell your parents and she's not – she doesn't hide it from her parents. They're like in the car and she's like, and then this happened. And then this happened. They're like, that's great, Coraline. Uh, her internal – generally speaking – her internal world is not that interesting to them yeah. until until the last part of the movie, the you know the culmination of the third act, and that that includes the direct feeling she has about dinner and you know yeah. the parents being boring and this place being boring and her internal dream world, which is you know to her just as real, yeah, um, as as the the real world, yeah, and why wouldn't it be because. By the end of the movie, we find out that this this is this is one of those movies where like the dream world is like confirmed to be real. Yeah, like they don't really. They don't really there's one little vestigial that. thing that they have, they have to stop at the end. Um, but <laughs> the, she also meets the rest of the people that she's created, and like you know the the the, the rat, the mouse performer, and the the ladies are kind of like you know sad. They're past their prime. They had dreams of stardom, and now they're stuck in this house trying to regale people with tales of their art. And then she sees the sisters and they put on them, you know, they're beautiful on the outside, like from an aesthetic standpoint, uh, conventionally attractive. And they're putting on this amazing show and the, you know, the, the Russian mouse, you know, is doing an amazing show with cannonballs and flipping mice and stuff like that. Um, but it's the cat who, after a, a mouse follows Coraline to spy on her, that kills the mouse and realizes, like, hey, instead of this beautiful mouse, it's a dirty, like, mangy, sick rat. And Keith David's like, I hate rats, even in the best of times. And, like, <laughs> there's a sense that that's starting to open up Coraline's eyes to, because she doesn't have buttons yet, to the fact that this is an illusion. With a very dark undercurrent, because that isn't a great, wonderful kangaroo mouse circuit performer. It's a rat that is is being used to give the perspective of magic when it's actually something like sinister and and disgusting. Um, and I love that he's like playing a little horn that you're like, oh, it's playing a cute little toot toot, and then yeah. he kills him, and he's like that. Rat was sounding an alarm. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, it's very. He's very like focused on the fact that like this is like a place of danger. Yeah. Like you should not, you should not be here. So they but give, he can go freely between the worlds. He's like, you know what? If you're not going to take my advice, like I- I'll probably get out of here just fine. Yeah, he doesn't. You he notes specifically he doesn't use the door, and he says there's always other doors, which. Uh, again, it's just kind of like the mysticism of, of cats. There's not like the other doors don't necessarily come up as a major, major plot point. Um, I mean, it's a, it, I feel like for a lot of people, it takes them a few years after they get a cat for the first time to not be creeped out by the fact that like a cat was sitting over in a chair and then you like turn your attention for a second and somehow the cat is over on your left shoulder. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I think it takes people a little while to get used to how creepy cats are because they do kind of seem like they're going through wormholes. Oh, the amount of time like so the cat's not allowed in this room that I record in where I also work in because my cat will chew cords and there's tons of cords with computer stuff. The amount of time I get up to go to the back bathroom and leave the door open and i come back in a minute later during a work day and he is like fast asleep in the middle of the couch bundled up like he's been there for for hours like how quick they move in and are just like yep this is my spot and hopefully 
no one notices me is pretty creepy. But um, so eventually she is presented with that choice. You can take the button eyes, live with us, have a great fun life or not. Um, she says no. She says she doesn't want to do that. And in the scene that like what's interesting. So Maya, my oldest, who loves scary movies and loves horror movies. There was a stage where she had watched this so much that she wanted us to start it at the one, two, three part is what she would would say. She didn't like she she th- this part was so terrifying for her, but she also loved it, which I guess makes sense for where she is today and what she likes watching that she would want to like if I can't watch Coraline, I just want to watch the one, two, three part. So when Coraline disobeys and doesn't get buttonized, that's when everything kind of gets revealed to her. Um, the other mother starts counting the worst thing that kids can hear. Uh, you know, I'm going to count to three. One, two, um, which me to every kid means your parents mean business. Um, and as she's saying that, she transforms from the cheery facsimile of her mom to a uh, almost like a, I don't know, like a China doll mechanical scarred spider who grows twice as big and cowers over her uh, and then throws her in jail until she learns to be more polite. Um, but it's a, that moment is really good and terrifying and really changes the stakes in a way. And the design on the other mother is is fantastic. Like I said, some cross between a broken porcelain doll and a mechanical spider is a really good, terrifying yeah. look. And there's an interesting thing where, like, um, the cat says uh, in the previous scene, the mother either wants someone to love or eat. And it turns out to be the, both of those. Yeah. Like, that's it's like a, uh, that's why the spider. Lo- she'll right. love you until, uh, you know, you've, you've been exhausted as a, as a, as a being of love. And, and uh, you know what? Now it's time for you to get eaten. Um, her, her playtime is over. Which is and well, I, I also why the spider imagery, right? Like a black widow. Like, I'm going to get my eggs, you know, fertilized through you and then eat you for, like, my babies are going to eat you for sustenance, right? Yes. Like, terrifying. And, Yes, and go, uh, uh, something that creeped me out this time um, watching it is when she goes to sleep, because previously that's been, like, a way to flip the world's back. Yeah. Um, when going to sleep doesn't work, she, like, goes to bed in her bedroom, blocks the door, and she has this horrifying, like, revelation that it doesn't work. I got a little yeah. creeped out. I was like, I was like, that is a very creepy idea that, like, your means of getting back, not only did that not work, but two, you were asleep in this fucked up world all night and you thought you were safe. Yeah. Yeah, you thought you were going to wake up safe in bed. Um, also happens in this world, um... That she helps YB and YB apparently was frowning in this world because oh, he has some level yeah, of autonomy. Yeah, yeah, and YB has a sewn up, sewn up Joker face, basically. Yeah. And she he takes can't the talk string because out. he frowned too much. Yeah. And uh, takes a string out, basically, because YB was not being a performative uh, yeah. enough little, uh, little uh, you know, scarecrow or whatever for them, a little puppet for, for her. Um, and uh, that reminds me just of something that, like, that, like, in a weird way, the movie begins with the crafting of the Coraline doll, right? I wanted to come back to this. Mm-hmm. That, like, you not you don't realize it, but the creator in this opening sequence, you think it's sort of like, 
maybe stop motion animators starting off on a warm sort of gentle note, which it is. Yeah. Um, or it's them kind of showing off a little bit, or maybe this was a proof of concept, you know? Um, but in reality, that's the, that's the bell dom making a little Coraline doll so yeah. that she can entrance, um, children into, into her web. And this idea that they connect with this, like, creator of this dark simulacra. Yeah. Um, this fantasy world where a creator has ultimate control. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, the fact that this movie inherently stop motion animation movies kind of need to be made by a a, a group of singular nut jobs yep a a group of people that have just lost all connection with reality and are willing to be like shot oh we're shooting this in 3d so shot shot yeah shot shot the do is a slight adjustment i mean (laughs) or or it's sitting in these movies take so long to make or it's sitting and waiting for a 3d model to make a slightly more wry smile for a character so so you're sitting there waiting for a thing to go like because the shot doesn't connect together well without this extra wry smile as a frame well that that's why you know so that that's that mimi scene in parks and recreation where adam scott has been working for months on a stop motion animation <laughs> Stand thing. in the place where you... <laughs> yeah, and it's th- it's three seconds long, and he's like, that was it? Months of work for three seconds is so perfect? I thought I made Avatar! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, because that, that is what, what stop motion... Uh, uh, can really be because it is. Like, yeah. It's, it's in, part of the reason I know we said there's long breaks between Henry Selick stuff. It's because it just takes that much. Because yeah, if you're not you, I mean, there's more computers and stop motion animation than there was, say, you know, thirty years ago. But it's still a slight movement here, a replacement of a face here, and stuff like. And then take your picture and move on to the next one. The uh, my uh, my oldest at one point there's there's some behind the scenes. I think it's on Nightmare on Christmas that was on Nightmare Before Christmas that was on Disney, and she wanted to watch it because she was just fascinated with it's like as much as I didn't necessarily connect to stop motion when I was a younger kid, mainly because of what I was exposed to. I remember seeing some behind the scenes somewhere of Nightmare Before Christmas and being like, just seeing how big the set was, what they had to do, or how big the models were, I guess you should say, and just being like, holy shit, like, this is yeah. quite quite the endeavor they do. Anyways, um, uh, YB breaks her out of prison and she escapes back through the door and thinks everything is fine, uh, but her parents aren't there. And she goes to sleep Again, hoping that everything's going to be fine when she wakes up in the morning. She wakes up. Her parents aren't there. So now she's in the situation where um, she's back at her house. She's locked the door. She's safe. But there's no there, there's no parents. And she goes back and essentially learns that the other mother has taken her parents as a way to force it. So Coraline makes a deal. Kind of a fun video gamey end mission here. Like it really is like... Um, you know, so those three ghost children have basically like, I always took it as that they're meant to be like eyes, um, like they're, they're petrified eyes or whatever, but essentially in the world is hidden an eye from each of these children that will reconnect them to their, 
uh, remove the buttons proverbially and let their souls be free of this this terrible place. And so she makes a deal with the other mother that if she finds all of the eyes hidden and also finds her parents that she will be allowed to leave. But otherwise, if not, she will agree to sew buttons into her into her eyes. Um, so she kind of goes back to where she's been before and some of the, like the horror of the world's been revealed, the garden, the dad is, is piloting, I guess. Uh, There's a really good jump scare because she's using this like scrying stone or something. She's using like a magic. Cause the world is actually colorless. Um, yes. She's using like a magic looking, looking glass, you know, just as the prophet Joseph Smith said, um, and he looked through to see the truth of the world. This is a very Mormon, very respectful of the church. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and he could see the, the truth of reality. Um, Coraline is, uh, is able to see that, um, she should go to Brigham Young. Um, so uh, the movie Great ends guy. with her attending Brigham Young College. No, she sees through this thing, and there's a good there's a good jump scare where she sees this like red orb thing. Yeah, and, and I like for a second I was like, "What is the monster here?" And then yeah, the dad's like tractor grasshopper monster comes Looks like alive. a praying mantis, and she's like, "Sorry, nothing else I can do but try." Like you know, she made she's making me basically try to kill with giant pinchers and stuff like that. Uh, that's because he's just a doll now at this point. Like his his will is as meaningless as as YB's was, right? Yep. Like it's, it's yep, um, yeah. So and then like you know she goes and like you know gets one from the the circus perform the circus the mouse tamer or whatever is actually just made up of rats that have been which. It, uh, I don't know if you did you ever read side. I think we've talked about this. Did you ever read sideways stories from Wayside School? Maybe when I was really young. Love those books. Cannot recommend them enough. Uh, it, uh, if you ever need a great book to read to like a 7 through 11 year old because they're just fantastic. I, there's one story where a new kid comes to school and he stinks and he's rude and he and he yells at everyone. And then like he's wearing all these coats and they keep taking the coats off him. And at the end, it's a dead rat. And they're like, well, that <laughs> explains it. Um, right. So like that concept of like rats – um dead rats like piloting or, or like just wriggling around and controlling this body is a is a good a good terrifying I, one. I think I think we haven't talked like we, we need to talk a little bit more in this section about how good of a horror movie this movie is. Yeah. Um and the rat thing is genuinely unnerving. There's yeah. there's um there's been a few movies in recent years that have tried to like sort of recreate the unnatural movements and they'll use like there's this tall spindly guy in one of the conjuring movies that has these like unnatural i think conjuring 2 is these unnatural crazy movements and a lot of them are just mimicking the strange herky-jerky nature of stop-motion animation yeah uh the way that these sort of puppets move in these like rigid sort of ways but this thing has this like liquidy strange movements where it walks spider-like and then it stands up and then it sags into a thing and it reminded me of like the monster the monster guy in um the dream door sequence of channel zero like um it's 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 a it's a specific type of horror that all yeah so i like the slender man what's what's that one movie that you recommended that i watched that was a shutter movie and has this terrifying moment of this, like narrowed it down to three hundred. There's a terrifying moment where 
this person comes out of an elevator only to realize he's tall and slender and like 15 feet tall that like is legitimately like I wanted to be over it freaked the hell out of me. It isn't Daniel isn't real, but it's like in the same area. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. I can't. I probably watched it even last year or the year before, but it's. Yeah, I'll have to come up with that. Yeah, it's, but it's, this idea, it's, this this ter- this this awful idea of you're just like uh, someone whose bones do not contour to even the idea of a spine, and he can walk backwards on his limbs, and it's just like it's a it's a great little horror image, and then all these rats c- screaming out of him is just like great. And the fun thing about it, since it's a kids' movie, he knows that that image is so creepy. You're in an attic. Afterwards, he has this like sort of cute, funny image of the rats firing cotton candy cannons at Coraline and yeah. them just sticking to her. Yeah. Like, uh, and, and a YB. Um, that's like, it's like, you know, it's kind of like him letting the steam off the way that like a horror movie might have a, a dark joke in the middle, or they might kill a character they know you hate as like a little bit of letting the steam off. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it it's, is it is directed like a horror movie. I mean, yeah, it's and it's very scary. I mean, the whole last third of this movie, uh, my daughter Elliot, who does not have, even though she watched this movie a ton when she was three, her natural kid inclination towards fear has bubbled up more. So the whole last third of this movie, she's like, uh, maybe that was too scary for me. But she's she sees her older sister watch so many scary stuff. Um, a really quick side note that just happened tonight that I think is funny, and we can cut this out, but she picked out two books for me to read to her tonight. She she saw the scary stories to tell in the dark book, and then there was a Phoebe and the Unicorn. like It's almost like a Calvin and the Hobbes type book, but with, with a unicorn. And so she wanted me to read, even though they were scary, one story from Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. So I read the first one, which is my favorite one to read to, to kids. It's the toe one because it's like short – and the end is fun because you can pull their toe and go, it's right here. And like, you know, it's a fun, goofy jump scare without like some sort of terrible ending or something like that. So we read that and she was like, I don't want to read that book anymore. I think that's that's not a night book anymore. That was too scary for me. So we're reading this funny book about this girl and her unicorn. And the entire time she's just kept saying, I just keep thinking about that toe. I can't. <laughs> that was too scary. Like, don't. I don't want to read any more of those. And then, like, five minutes later, she's like, just can't get this toe out of my head. She's <laughs> um, such a funny kid. The way, so- the way she picks up on phrases is so funny. Yeah. She's just so like, some kids talk like kids and just pick up weird words. Uh, your, the, your middle daughter or your middle child just. She picks Absolutely. up on phrases and sentences. And then she picks up with the same cadence like a Midwest mom. She's just like, <laughs> no, I just so can't believe that that happened to me. She's so, she <laughs> okay. is. We, she just started kindergarten, all day kindergarten, and we already got a text from her teacher just being like, she is a joy to have in class. Um, <laughs> she's very funny. She very is, sweet she is, she is very funny. The last thing I took her to a baseball game. So she, we, we stopped trying to. Uh, censor swearing in our house um, or like, you know, that's always a tough balance. Like, we basically have explained to our kids, like, swearing's fine. They're not bad words. Like, there are bad words, like slurs and stuff like that. But like, these aren't bad words. But some people can't say them in school. There's like a, they're you can say them at home. You can't mm-hmm. say them in public because people, you know, we respect other people and other people would be bothered by that or not like the language. So um, we were in the car going to the baseball game and Elliot started just saying like, uh, 
what are we going to fucking be the fuck, you know, like all this stuff. And Maya was bringing a friend who might not have the same rules. And I was like, hey, Elliot, can we just, just, you know, as I try to look for the parking garage, can we, uh, can we stop the swearing a little bit? And she's like, I got to get it out. I got to get out all my, my, uh, my, uh, my not allowed to say in public words before we go into public. <laughs> like, Which is such a little kid way of thinking yeah. about it. Like, like I got all these words I got to say, uh, but I got to, yeah, you got to burn through all the bullets. She does find all the three stones, but not before the moon turns into a button and or the three eyes. And so she's like, you lost. You didn't find your parents. And at this point, all the furniture is bug looking. The whole house is getting creepier and creepier. Parts of the exterior, the facade of the garden have floated out into nothingness because you actually, she doesn't need that part of the facade anymore. And Coraline goes, recognizes that the cat is there and hatches a plan to say, hey. Um, Meanwhile, she also notices that there's a snow globe with her parents in. So she figures out where her parents in, but the cat is like, she's not going to play by these rules. Like, you you can win all you want. She's not going to let you go. And so Coraline realizes that she needs to cheat in the same way, too. So she goes, I actually do know where my parents are. They're in the, they're in the tether between worlds inside the doorway. And that tricks the other mother into opening the doorway to show her that she's not there. And then she throws the cat at the other mother who and grabs the snow globe and the eyes and um and then she, you know the other mother loses even the the final rest of the the house facade she's like you little bratty girl you cheater blah 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 and the house kind of folds in underneath itself to a, to be a giant uh spider web um, it's one this, of the special effects in this movie where if it was CGI, I'd be like, "That's cool looking," but like since it's stop motion, I'm genuinely it's, a, it's like, amazing. I have no idea how, how the did fuck it. did you even come up with that, and and how did it get past just doodling on a page stage? Yeah. <laughs> um, I've heard that this is the sequence. Like a lot of it's good in 3D, but I'm not surprised to hear because it it it's so good in the contrast between. Uh, you know, a two-dimensional web becoming a, a, a three-dimensional web and falling down on the white background. Like, it looks like I'm watching it in 3D, even when I'm not. It's so it's so good. But yeah, the, a fight ensues, um, and they she's able to get to the door and close it and run back. Basically closes the mother's hand in the door, run back, lock the door, and is safe. And then her, her parents are basically there eventually. She goes out and tells YB about this only for the metal hand to escape and still try to get him, which is kind of the good moment of like, hey, YB seeing this, this is real. And they uh, they kill the hand or whatever, and they throw it down the well uh, that earlier in the movie they were talking about was bottomless. The end of the movie is like, uh, I really like the end of the movie. You note it as a cop-out, but I think maybe you didn't call it a cop out or like a little more I just said it, I just said it's very it's very no 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 I was referring to something wicked this way comes oh. I think this movie I think is very is is very good and earned in its sweetness um I just have one one comment just one well, comment okay do you want to say it now or what what why bother telling YB's grandmother any of this information <laughs> like, this is not this is not helpful information no no no, no. 
Your sister is in heaven as you assumed. Oh. However, she was in sort yeah, of the, like the, the a ghost, the ghost children for 70 say th- years. The ghost children <laughs> say thank you after they've been released from the prison and yeah, they're like go tell your grandmother or sisters in heaven. The truth is so much worse. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, like, she wasn't a hell of dimension. He wasn't a hell of dimension for quite a long time, but he she is fine. Um you knew she was dead. Whoa. Yeah, don't worry. She was killed by a demon. Yeah. Uh, oh, the demon put uh, needles into her eyes. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, well. To be more clear, she wanted that to happen. So really, it was consensual, this, it was consensual, eye, eye ripping needles in the eye situation. But she learned her lesson, and she's in heaven now. Um, <laughs> I love though the so the ending is. There's a scene that doesn't spend much time on it, but it pulls back that shows a, a bright sunny day. People tending the garden that looks actually nice and the whole complex kind of having a big picnic Um, with a couple like thank yous and stuff like that. And the reason I like it is because it does feel like we've seen a very gloomy perspective of two very tired adults in rainy Oregon. We've ever been to Oregon when it's rainy. It does feel really gloomy in a house they haven't fully moved in to and work they're trying to accomplish quickly. And I like that without explicitly stating it, like Coraline doesn't say, I learned this to, to YB, but it's showing that there, you know, there's gloomy days and there's sunny days and looked Seeing the perspective of all of these people through the prism of everyone hanging out in a bright sunny day and everything like that is the first time you realize like, oh, she, you know, there is a, there is a beauty in this world of like parents and children smiling at each other and having fun with these people that removes a lot of the gloominess or the creepy nature. But like some days are not going to be like that. Some days are going to suck and they're going to be gloomy and your parents are going to ignore you and everything else. But like, just like anything else, you can't have the sweets all the time without a cost from the other mother. And, uh, and you can't always just have gloomy days either. Like life is all about the balance between both. And, and even though for so much of the movie, we only saw the gloominess, which made the other mother's world seem bright and colorful in a way that, Coraline's didn't, we now see visually that Coraline's world was always bright and colorful when you knew where to look or to recognize that it's uh, it's a spectrum. Yeah, and it's true. And it's also like, you know, it, it sounds, it can sound kind of pat in certain ways, but like, I think it's a lesson that every parent needs to learn, right? <laughs> Is that like, you actually can't keep your child happy all the time. And I don't mean the tantrums. I mean, like, your kid is going to have days where their friends said some mean things to them yep. and there's nothing you can do about it that's healthy. Like, yep. you can't make them, you can't be like, oh, fuck that kid. That kid sucks. <laughs> you also can't be like, you also can't be like, you know what? I need to really, really get in the nitty gritty with you and your friends. Like, yep. there's, there's, there's bright, there's good days and bad days and like getting and you to do accept need to- that these are seasons. That there's there's seasons to all of these yeah. things, and, and sometimes that life has this. Like, like there's a seasonality to all these things, and life has its rainy days and its sunny days, and it has its winters and it has its summers, and and that like, um, not being too bogged down in the fact that like you know you're you're feeling like this right now, like you know there's a lot of days where you feel like shit and 
it's not going to feel like that forever. Yeah. Um, yeah, through the good and the bad, this too uh, shall, shall pass. Um, and I also think, yeah, it's also good, like, you know, I sometimes have been a parent that's like, I constantly got to do activities, but you do need to let your kids just go explore and hang out with their friends and, and do some of those things too. Like, they need to be their own person outside of you too. And sometimes that feels boring to them, but you know, kids, kids need to be able to figure out a way to make their own fun too, and not constantly be entertained as well. And like, that's an important balance to everything. So, uh, yeah, it's a great movie. One of the best movies we've ever covered on the show. If you haven't seen it, you're just making a, some bad life choices. And I hope you correct it, uh, immediately following this. If you heard all this and haven't actually seen the movie, uh, widely available on streaming platforms and rentals and everything else. Uh, Peter next week, I mentioned that we're doing a movie that is so unwidely available that um, when I couldn't find my DVD because it's out of print. I, well, I think actually the DVD is in print, but like I didn't have time to order it again and didn't know if I wanted to order another DVD copy of this movie. Not on Blu-ray. It's on any streaming platform. Uh, I found a YouTube rip that someone holding up a camera to a TV. Um, thankfully, I was able to get one through uh, a good buddy. We'll call it the angel on my shoulder. But I still... <laughs> I had to watch it on my computer and I had to shrink the screen because it's a rip of the DVD and uh, it doesn't look very good. But a movie that I watched for the first time when I was doing a Spooktober. Um, Peter, I think you – did you watch this as a kid or you watched this for recent watched Spooktober? This as an adult. Yeah. I think it was a Spooktober movie. Uh, which is a 1983 made-for-TV movie based on Ray Bradbury's short story and kind of establishing the trope of – uh, the the carnival guy who gives you kind of what you want, uh, and that is uh, something wicked this way comes. And next week, if you listen to this podcast, we're going to be the wicked people who are coming this way with that episode of the podcast, Peter. Hey, so, so yeah, good night, I guess. Good night. Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand and you want to support the show. We truly, absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, We really do appreciate you. Uh, With kisses and smooches, Peter and Aaron. (laughs)